Our scripture reading this morning in our text is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 17. And if I've preached this here before, I'm sorry, but I'm not, because I don't know about you, but I always need the word. That's the thing, you know, you get my age and suddenly every day is a new day. It's wonderful. Except when it's not. Anyway, this is God's word. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is God's holy word. can I grow in my faith and in my Christian walk? Why, if I'm following Christ, do difficulties still come into my life? How can I keep going? If these questions find an echo in your own thoughts uh, this morning, then today's passage 
should give you answers to your questions. And I pray, encourage you in the journey. Let me set the scene. I mentioned it briefly. We are in the final hours of Jesus' life here on earth. In something like 18 hours or less, Jesus will be crucified. He will die. And he will be buried. Judas has left the group already to go and to betray Jesus. And Jesus is addressing those who are truly his disciples. Which applies to you and to me this morning if we are his by faith. Now if you're one who likes to keep notes, I have four points. Uh, And those points are this. My first point is the source of faithfulness. Excuse me, fruitfulness. And that's verses 1 through 2. The second point is that we can only be fruitful if we abide in Christ. That's verses 3 through 8. Thirdly, we abide in Christ by obeying His commandments. Those are verses 9 through 15. And then finally, we are chosen and appointed to bear abiding fruit. Verses 14 through 17. Well, let's look at the first of these, the source of fruitfulness. Verses 1 and 2. Jesus begins by saying, I am the true vine. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus begins this section with the last of his famous I am statements, which are seven claims by Jesus that we find here in the Gospel of John, beginning with I am the bread of life in John 6.35, sorry, John 6, uh, followed by I am the light of the world, John 8.12, I am the door, 10.7 and 9, and I am the good shepherd, chapter 10, verses 11 and 14. I am the resurrection and the life, he says in 11.25, and we have I am the way and the truth and the life in 14.6. And now here in 15.1 we have the... I am the true vine. Each one of these I am statements, they're called this because they begin with an unusual Greek construction. Ego means I am. Ami means I am. When you mash these two together, you have ego, ami. Now what's so significant about that? Besides the fact it's emphatic. Well, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that we call the Septuagint. When they come to God's divine name, so you know in your English translation, if you come to God's divine name, typically it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord. But that means it's actually the divine name Yahweh, meaning I am. And so the translators of the Greek Hebrew, the Bible from from the Hebrew to the Greek, when they came to the divine name in the Old Testament, They rendered it, Ego Eimi. And so, this is reserved particularly and only for the divine name. And by using this construction, along with references to God as his Father, Jesus throughout has pointedly demonstrated his claim to divinity as the Son of God. So when someone says, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you read the Bible? Because yes, he did, repeatedly. When he said, when they said, uh, um, you know, we have Abraham as our father, and 
And, and Jesus says to them, look, before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he meant. They picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because he was making himself the same as God. And so he has done so throughout the Gospel of John. But why does Jesus say, I am the true vine? And simply, instead of simply saying, I am the vine. Why the true vine? Are there competing vines? Among which, you know, you can choose one? Well, one can make an argument from application that, yes, this is the case in life. We are constantly tempted, are we not, to find some other source of life other than Christ. And in fact, many try to do so every single day, only to find in the end that these other sources, these other vines, cannot and do not deliver the goods. But that's not what Jesus has in mind here. What he has in mind here is that Israel... God's covenant people is described in several places in the Old Testament as being God's vine. And for the sake of time, I'll look at only three. And I'm going to actually cut these down too. But if you're taking notes again, Isaiah 5 verses 1 through 7 uh, does the same thing. However, um, I'm just going to zero in on verse 7. Isaiah says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So there, Israel is referred to as God's vine. Jeremiah 2, 21. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. That's Jeremiah 2, 21. How have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Israel is supposed to be the true vine. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 17. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with the shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Listen to this. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted and for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. As God's vine, Israel failed to produce good fruit. It failed to produce good fruit. And what it did produce led to God's judgment. Jesus, however, has come. He, the true vine, the true Israel, the one to whom earthly Israel pointed, albeit dimly and, yes, haltingly, but he's now here. And soon he will produce fruit to God's glory throughout the earth. The true vine, says Jesus, is not the apostate people of national Israel but Jesus himself. He is the very embodiment of the people of God. And because of this, it is through him 
then that all who are in union with him by faith are made into one body. Jesus is the true vine. But that's not all that he says. He says, my father is the vine dresser. And here we have the only occurrence where an additional uh, assertion is made in conjunction with an I am statement. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The father is the one who's planted the vine and he is the one who tends the vine. He's the one who's chosen for himself a people. He is the one who has sent the Son to redeem this people. And he is the one whose purposes are seen moving throughout all of history, bringing his plan to fruition for his eternal glory. What does the Father do? Well, the text tells us the Father removes useless branches and prunes productive ones so that they will be even more fruitful. But what or who are the branches and why are some unproductive and others bear fruit? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. Jesus tells us exactly who these branches are in verses 5 and 6. He says to his disciples, you are the branches. And as Jesus' disciple today, uh, disciples today, this also applies to us. Or, and so because it applies to us, as my old U.S. Air Force drill sergeant used to say, Listen up. You need to pay attention to this. Jesus says in verse 2 that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. There's a play on words happening here in the Greek. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. literally cuts off. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he cleanses. And the, the word for cut off is airy. The word for prunes is cutary. You see the similarity. He cleanses it that it may bear more fruit. We get our English word catharsis, by the way, which means to cleanse from this very same Greek word. Now, my lovely bride is here, Mandy. Sorry, Mandy, to call you out in front of everyone. But when we were first married... I knew very little about gardening. I still don't know a whole lot. But I did learn quite a bit from uh, the likes of watching uh, Gardener's World. That, and I learned that with some plants, especially fruit-bearing ones, uh, or even Budlia for that matter, you have to be cruel to be kind. That is, in order to promote vigorous growth and increased yield in the coming growing season, you have to prune back the productive branches to encourage more fruitful growth. It may seem counterintuitive, it certainly did to me, but if you fail to do this, next year's crop is not going to be as great. And if you're given enough seasons of not pruning it, the branches might even become useless. And so it is with us. Our loving Heavenly Father prunes us for our good, for our future growth, and for our increased fruitfulness to his glory. Pruning is often very painful. And some of you know exactly what I mean by that. You're in a season perhaps of being pruned. And it's a hard place. And it's a hard providence to endure. Hard, yes, but not without hope. Not without hope. 
Because it is the work of our loving Heavenly Father. We can trust Him to cut back just exactly what needs uh, to go in order to bring about His purposes in our lives. Because He wields the pruning knife, not only with precision, but also with love. We can say, even in the midst of the most painful and difficult season, He is indeed causing this, yes, even this, to work together for my good as He conforms me to the image of His Son through it. So take comfort, dear one, uh, for at no time are the pruned branches cut off. At no time are the pruned branches separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And at no time will we who are truly His ever need to fear being cut off from the true vine. It may not be pleasant, but the outcome is glorious. But are you here, are you here this morning in a season of pruning? This may sound strange, but please, again, take comfort in this. Only fruitful branches are pruned. You are, therefore, a fruitful branch, being prepared for even more fruitfulness to God, for bringing even more glory to Him. Again, no pruning is pleasant. But remember that you are in your loving Father's hands, who along with the pruning will give you the grace and strength to endure it. Well, how is it that some branches are fruitful and others are not? Well, again, look at what Jesus says to his disciples in verses 3 through 8. This is my second point. We can only be fruitful if we abide in Christ. Jesus begins in verse 3. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And here we see that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, uh, to those who are really his, who have heard his word, that is the whole of his teaching concerning who and what he is and what he does, and and, and they have joined what, what they have heard with faith. This is in direct contrast to what Jesus had said a little while earlier to Peter about his disciples being clean with regard to Judas Iscariot. You remember in uh, John 13, we have this, uh, scene, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Jesus gets up to wash the feet, the dirty feet of his disciples. Normally, because people walked around so much, you know, they didn't have e-scooters and all that kind of stuff. Their feet would get dirty. And it was the task of the lowliest house servant to wash the feet of the guests. Well, none of these disciples were willing to take that role. They're like, I'm not going to wash your feet. And so they're all sitting there having this, ready to have this Passover meal with dirty feet. What does Jesus do? He then pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, 
answered him saying, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You never shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. So that's Peter's bluster. But now look what Peter says. He said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash every bit of me. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. For Judas has since left then to betray the Lord. So Jesus is now speaking to his remaining disciples, those who are truly his, already clean by his word, who have not only heard his word, but that they have believed it and taken it on board as it were. They have acted upon his word by faith and they're trusting him. Not perfectly, no, not at all. Which is why we'll see them scattered when Jesus is arrested. And this is not to be confused with the cleansing or pruning which which the Father does to productive branches. The cleansing here refers to our being born again, born from above by the Holy Spirit, as we saw in John chapter 3. If you remember from John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. The Spirit who then works faith in our regenerate hearts to trust Christ, to repent from our sins and to walk in obedience to Christ as His disciples. Judas was not truly Christ's disciple. Oh, outwardly he was. Outwardly he put on a good show. He he walked with Jesus for three years, day in and day out. He attended every single service, if if you will, and was there for prayer. He witnessed miracles. He even took part in a successful evangelistic campaign, which the Lord had sent them out two by two to accomplish. But Judas was an outsider, even while on the inside. Judas was an outsider, even while on the inside. And in much the same way as those who may come to church, perhaps even faithfully, but who at the end of the day do not have a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who have never put their trust in Him, and in Him alone to save them. Judas is the personification of the one whom John warns against in his first epistle in 1 John 2.19. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What about you this morning? Are you an outsider on the inside? Do you know Jesus Christ as the true vine? Is He your source of life, both for now and in the life to come? Are you trusting in Him? Are you abiding in Him? And the answer to this is a vital one, for we can only be truly fruitful if we are abiding in Christ. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word in the Greek to abide means to remain, to continue, to stay. It's used in one form or another nine times in six verses, uh, verses in, in verses 4 through 10. And here, perseverance is in view 
How does one persevere? How does one bear much fruit? By remaining, by continuing, by abiding in Jesus, the true vine. No branch has life in itself. The life of the branch and thus of the believer is found in the true vine, that is in Christ and in Him alone. It's no wonder then that Jesus commands His disciples to abide in Him. Uh, On this, uh, the commentator D.A. Carson comments, he says, The imagery of the vine is stretched a little when the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. But the point is clear. Continuous dependence on the vine. Constant reliance upon Him. Persistent spiritual imbibing of His life. This is the sine qua non of spiritual fruitfulness. That is, it's the necessary condition without which spiritual fruitfulness is not possible. Verses 5 through 6 repeat the thought from verses 1 through 4 regarding the two types of branches and their respective outcomes. Fruitfulness or barrenness. But they do so in a very stark manner. Verses 7 through 8, while they begin to explain the means of bearing much fruit, Uh, They do so as well as its purpose. Look at verses 5 and 6. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. The contrast here is clear. One either abides in in Christ and as a result is fruitful... For one does not continue in Christ and is subsequently thrown away, gathered up, burned. But what life the false branch seemed to have had in its association with the vine, or or, or, uh, what life the false branch seemed to have in its association with the vine, withers away. All pretense is removed. The end is judgment and fire. Note too the warning, apart from me you can do nothing. As Luther once said, Uh, That nothing is not a little something. All the glory goes to God. As the hymn writer Augustus Toplady says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If we are in Christ, abiding in Him, we bear much fruit. But apart from Him, we bear nothing at all that is useful. But how are we to be fruitful as we abide in Him? Well, notice, first of all, it's by Scripture-informed prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The phrase, My words, in the Greek it's remata, it means all that Jesus taught which taken together comprise His Word, His Logos. His words abiding in us inform us. They guide us how we are to pray as we are brought into obedience and into conformity to His Word and therefore to Christ Himself. Again, John in 1 John 5 says this, This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. The Lord delights in answering the prayers of His people, prayers guided by His Word and in accordance with His will. 
How much more then does He delight in answering our prayers that He would make us fruitful and in so doing bring glory to His name. Look at verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is why we are to be fruitful. The purpose of abundant fruitfulness, notice much fruit, that comes of our abiding in the true vine, of abiding that is remaining and continuing in Christ, is nothing, nothing short of God's glory. Our confession reflects this. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer one. What is the chief end or purpose of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But what is this fruit? Some have speculated that it's winning souls. Others have speculated that it's love. Still others say that it refers to obedience or Christian virtue. But it's more than simply any single one of these. And again, quoting from D.A. Carson, He says, the branch's purpose is to bear fruit. You see that in verse 5. But the next verses show that this fruit is the consequence of prayer in Jesus' name. And it's to the Father's glory. This then suggests that the fruit in the vine imagery represents everything. Everything that is the product of effective prayer in Jesus' name. Including obedience to Jesus' commands. The experience of Jesus' joy. Verse 11, love for one another, we see in verse 12, and witness to the world, verses 16 and later on in 27. Carson says, this fruit is is nothing less than the outcome of persevering dependence on the vine, driven by faith, embracing all of the believer's life and the product of his or her witness. How do we abide in Christ to produce this fruit? We abide in Christ by obeying His commandments. This is my third point. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says in verse 9, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Before I move on, let me me just pause for a moment to reflect on what Jesus has just said. As the Father has loved me, so so have I loved you. Brothers and sisters, if you are Christ's this morning, do you realize that Jesus loves you the same way that the eternal, almighty Father has loved Him? The second person of the triune God. We cannot begin to comprehend what is the height and the depth and the breadth of this statement. But suffice it to say that you and I are more loved than we could ever imagine. You and I in Christ are more loved than you could ever imagine. I think it's Jack Welch says likes to uh, give this statement. He says, as we grow in our knowledge of Christ and in our, the depth of our faith, we realize more and more that God is far more holy than we ever gave Him credit for we also begin to realize something else. That we are far more sinful than we ever dared to admit. So Welsh brings these two together. He says, I am far more sinful than I ever dared to acknowledge. But in Christ, I am far more loved than I ever dared to hope. And that is you and I this morning. If you are in Christ. How should we respond to this? 
Well, the only response really is, as Jesus tells us, abide in my love. Again, how? Well, keep reading. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, some Christians seem to get nervous whenever they hear anything to do with commandments and obedience. Somehow they wrongly think that grace and obedience are mutually exclusive. This is not only couldn't be further from the truth, it's absolutely not the case. Christ, who graciously saves us through faith in His life, death, and resurrection, is the one who commands us to obey, to keep His commandments. As Luther also once said, we are saved by faith alone. Yes, that's true. But it's not by a faith that is or remains alone. Saving faith always produces the evidence of a changed life. One that has lived, not perfectly, but more and more in conformity to Christ and to His commandments. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, my my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, some of you... Get a little nervous about that. Work out your salvation. Wait a minute, I'm talking about saved by grace. Yes, you are. You're also saved by works, but not your own. You're saved by Christ's works because He has lived the life that you and I could never live. He's done so perfectly under the law, obeying His Father in every single point. And He credits us when, when we come to Him in faith, faith that He supplies through His Holy Spirit. When we come to Him in faith and there's that great exchange, He takes our sin and guilt, pays for it in full, And he exchanges it and gives us, and credits our account with his righteousness. When we stand before God, God looks at us with a smile. Why? Because he loves his son and he sees the righteousness of his son in us now who stand by faith in Christ. But the working out of your salvation in fear and trembling isn't go work your salvation. It's let the salvation that is now in you have its outworking. Again, I'm not a gardener, but if I plant a tomato, I should hope I get tomatoes. If I'm getting pine cones, something is wrong. That's not the fruit that should be coming out of that. God has planted Christ in us and us in Christ. And so Christ should have his outworking in our lives. We should become more and more conformed to the image of his son. And it's God who is doing this. Yes, we have to obey. We have to submit. But God is the one who's doing this. He is the sanctifying factor. Or the sanctifying force. It's the work of His Holy Spirit. We are saved by grace to work out the reality of that salvation in our lives. We are to bear fruit according to our new nature. And when we're given a new nature by the work of the Holy Spirit, that nature begins under the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit and outworking in our lives. If you profess to have faith in Christ this morning, yet your life shows no evidence of this, then you need to be sure that you are truly Christ's. This is what it means when we're commanded to make our calling and election sure. Our obedience is evidence of our love for Him, and by extension, the fact that we are truly His. 
Again, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved by grace unto good works, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. We are His workmanship, he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. His commands are not burdensome. See the fullness of joy that is ours when loving obedience keeps us abiding in Christ's love, in Him. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Loved as we are in Christ, our natural response then should be to love those whom Christ loves. And so Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice again the driving force behind our obedience. It's love. It's the principle of Luke chapter 7 at work here. What's the principle of Luke chapter 7? You remember a woman, or Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. A Pharisee's name is Simon. In sneaks a woman. A woman whose reputation precedes her. And it's not a good one. But this is a woman who has come to faith in Christ. To repent of her sins. And you remember she's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and washing them with the tears that are falling from her eyes. And Jesus says to Simon, and Simon, by the way, is thinking, if he were really the Messiah, he'd know what kind of woman this was that was touching him, and he wouldn't let her touch him. So Jesus says, Simon, I've got a question for you. Someone is, owes... I forget the figures, but let's just say a million pounds. And someone owes 20 pounds. The person that is owed the money forgives both. Which of these two people do you think is going to love that guy more? He says, well, I suppose the one that's been forgiven more. He says, yeah. You see this woman? She has sinned much, yet she has been forgiven. And because of that, she loves much. You know, when I came in here, Simon, you didn't offer me a greeting or a kiss. She hasn't finished, stopped kissing my feet. You didn't wash, wash my feet? Yes, she's washed my feet with her tears and her hair. She who has been forgiven much, loves much. That's the principle. And that's really our, the driving force of our love. We have been forgiven much. And as we realize how much we've been forgiven, again, it should drive us in glorious exaltation and praise to God for His great grace because we realize His grace is even greater than we thought it was. The work of the cross spans that chasm between our sinfulness and God's holiness. And as that that chasm grows, as we understand things more and more as they really are, it should redound more and more to glory to Christ for what He has done. Jesus lays out for his disciples the greatest example of what it means to love. Something that he is about to personally demonstrate most vividly for them in just a handful of hours. Though they would not have necessarily understood it as such at the time. He says, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are now my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Notice the emphasis here on the character of their friendship. It's obedience. It's not the condition of their friendship. Because the disciples are Jesus' friends, 
They are to obey his commands. They are not his friends because they obey him. You see the difference? Because they're his friends, they and we should obey our master, our friend. Don't get the cart before the horse. But despite all that we've heard, unless anyone has been erroneously thinking that somehow it's up to their own strength and the strength alone by which they abide in Christ, let me point you to verse 16 as we begin to conclude this message. And this is my fourth point. We who are chosen, we are chosen and appointed to bear abiding fruit. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Just as a branch does not decide by itself to be placed in a vine, neither have we who are Christ's by a sheer act of our own will decided to be placed into him. It's true that we who are in him have, in an act of faith, believed in him, put our trust in him, we've repented of our sins, and we must commit daily to abide in him. But this is all because of Christ's choosing, and not ultimately our own. Even the very faith that we exercise is God's gift to us, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. And Jesus reminds his disciples and us of this fact. Encouragingly, he also says that we who are his chosen are so appointed for the purpose of bearing fruit. Fruit that remains. Fruit that will endure. Fruit that comes through fruitful prayer to the Father in Jesus' name by his authority. Fruitful prayer that results in a changed life, in obedience and loving joy in him, in a witness to a lost and dying world and of seeing others brought to Christ through that witness. Because of our union with Him, this fruitfulness then can really only flourish in the mutual love found within the body of Christ. We bear fruit because we are in the true vine. But we do not grow well and bear fruit on our own. We need each other in this process. We grow best and bear the most fruit when we do so together. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, the true vine, that we might abide in him. Thank you that before the foundations of the world, before what we can consider time began, you had already chosen us that we should go and bear fruit for your glory. Oh Lord, help us in this. We thank you that you have promised us that you will cause all things to work together for our good. We who are called according to your plan, you will conform us to the image of Christ through these things. Lord, you will the fruit that you have appointed for each of our lives, you will indeed help us to bear. Lord, we ask that you would help us in this, in this endeavor. Give us obedient and willing hearts. Help us to aid one another in bearing fruit, in lifting the hands that are weary, encouraging the hearts that may become tired and sad. Help us to keep our eyes upon you, fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith, 
We ask these things for Christ's glory. Amen.